thank you. Be seated. You can be seated this morning. I imagine after our, our sermon last week, as we went through the end of Mark 4, and the disciples made it through the storm, they were saying something like that, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Uh, children's Church can be dismissed at this time, and they can head downstairs and have a great time down there. And we're going to be in Mark chapter 5, as we read, and we're going to look at a, it's a lengthy passage. Mark, though he writes um, very fast-paced in, in nature, going from event to event, there are certain things that he really hones in on. In the last couple of weeks, he has done that, and it's going to be like that through the remainder of chapter 5, as he continues to show the, the ultimate power of Christ and the ability that he has to overcome uh, the things that are found in this world. And so that's the passage that we're going to look at today, Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Uh, we won't read it again for time's sake, but the title of the message is More Than a Story. More than a story. And I pray that every time you come to the Word of God, that we would understand that it's more than a story. It's not just something that has been written down and, and somebody made it up or thought it up or it's a feel-good story. I, I mean, let's be honest, there are a lot of feel-good stories in the Bible, right? They make you feel good. But it's more than that. This is an actual account that took place uh, with real people in, in real danger, in real trouble, and Jesus really overcame these things. And I pray that we would understand that today. And the title, I hope, will make more sense as we go through our time together uh, in the Word of God. But let's pray again and ask God's blessing on our time together this morning. I uh, pray that our hearts would be softened. And as I pray, uh, again, I ask that you would pray and that you would pray for God to speak to your heart in the way that He knows that you need it. And more than that, I pray that, that we would heed the words of Jesus that we've seen over the last uh, couple of weeks. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. That we would hear what God is seeking to say to us this morning and that we would respond to it in a way that glorifies Him. God, we thank you again for this morning that we can gather, and we do pray, God, that you would use our, your word and our hearts to transform us uh, to be more like Jesus. And God, in, in Mark chapter 4, and as we get into Mark chapter 5, we certainly see an incredible display of the power that Christ had as He overcame the different obstacles that they faced as a group. And God, I pray that that would be a reminder to us of the power that he still has in our lives. And as we saw last week, uh, we know that he can calm the storm. But God, even if he doesn't calm the storm, we pray that we would allow him to calm our hearts, that we would come under his authority, under his control, and whatever comes into our lives, we would just leave it in the hands of Jesus, that we would let him do a work in us through the things that we face, even if we don't like them. And God, we know that you can use these things for our good and for your glory as we submit to you in them. And so, God, I pray this morning that you would do just that. Pray for Children's Church downstairs, for the nursery workers, God, that you would give them a great time with these kids, help them, even at the youngest age, to be able to instill deep truths in their lives. And the deep truths oftentimes are really the most simple truths. God, I pray that they'd walk away knowing that Jesus loves them. So we ask, God, that you do a great work in our hearts today. And again, we promise to give you the praise and glory for it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Last week, we saw that the storm uh, was indeed great, but we know now that they made it to the other side. In the moment, they didn't know if they were going to make it. They didn't know how it was going to end. They didn't know if their lives were going to be uh, finalized in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, in the middle of a storm like they'd never experienced before. They thought they were going to die. They, they spoke sharply to Jesus. Jesus, don't you even care about us? Don't, aren't you even concerned with our lives or our safety in this moment? And we know that Jesus woke up from his nap 
and he calmed the storm, but he also calmed the disciples. And I found it interesting last week after the service, talking with so many of you, that this idea of storms really resonates with us in our lives, doesn't it? As we face trials and challenges and difficulties, we can in some ways relate to the disciples in the thing that they were experiencing, though the thing we are experiencing is completely different. And the lesson that Christ taught his disciples back then about his unmatched power and unmatched ability is the lesson that he desires to still teach us today, that he is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. And as I said, it may sometimes include him calming the storm that is raging around us, and sometimes it may just be that he calms the storm within us. But either way, we should stop and recognize his great power and bow at his feet one more time. As they went through the trial, they thought the storm was a big deal, and it was. But truthfully, the storm that they faced on the Sea of Galilee was something that God was using to prepare them for what was ahead of them. Now, when they, the storm ceased on the middle of the sea, they thought, you know, that's the worst thing that we could ever experience, right? And then as they get into Mark 5, in the same time frame as they make it to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, Something greater, something scarier in some regards was waiting for them on the other side. And isn't that a reminder of how life often is? That you go through one obstacle and one challenge and one trial and you think, I've made it through. But then before you know it, sometimes even before you can get those words out of your mouth, another trial has made its way in front of you. Another obstacle has found its way in your path. And what does this teach us? Well, for the disciples, I think it taught them that they should never despise the trials because the trials are meant to push them closer to Christ. In the midst of that storm, as they were thinking they were going to die, they eventually made their way to Jesus. Now, when they made it to the shoreline and they're met with this demon-possessed man, who do you think they were hiding behind? The one who just calmed the storm. Why? Because they recognized his power and his ability to do the supernatural, and that's what was needed again in this moment. And so friends, as the disciples learned this truth, may we learn it as well, that we should never despise a trial that pushes us closer to Christ. We must understand that God is always preparing us for what he has prepared for us. And though we might not like at times what God has prepared for us, when we walk in his footsteps, when we follow his way, he will be making us into the person that he wants us to be and will be becoming more dependent on him as we live through this life well they made it to the other side and as i said they were probably relieved but then after they touched shore they were very likely shaken up again because of what was waiting for them when they got there reading mark chapter 5 shows us that the scene was incredible the man that they're confronted with and the man that jesus confronts in this account was for lack of a better word, a crazy man who was causing harm to himself, but also causing harm to those around him. He was shunned by those in society. He was was, uh, locked up in chains, and he was able to break free of those chains. And that speaks to the incredible strength that he had within him, not from a natural ability, but from the demon possession that was within him. So the scene was indeed great. As the disciples see this, certainly they were scared. They didn't want anything to happen to Jesus, but they also didn't want anything to happen to themselves. And so they probably hung back a little bit and waited to see what Jesus was going to do. This country 
that they were in as they passed from Capernaum to the other side of the sea would have been the country of the Gadarenes. Who are these people? Well, it's known that these people were, were mostly Gentiles. There were likely some Jews living in that day as people had begun to mingle together in some regards, but it was, it was most definitely a Gentile region. So not necessarily believers in the God of Abraham or not people who were necessarily looking for the Messiah, people that had, had not even rejected it. They just didn't really even probably know much about it. As Jesus and the disciples make their way there, they're they're met again with this man who finds himself in a sorrowful state, yet it was no match for Jesus' ability. It's interesting that in this region today, still the poorest people find themselves living in the tombs as this man lived. And in this region today, if you were to go there, you could find a scene where, where there would be a steep embankment that led down to the Sea of Galilee, just as Mark describes for us in this text. From how it appears in Mark, Jesus was coming here for a very specific purpose, and it was to meet with this individual. I heard a sermon on this passage a long time ago, and it was titled, A New Dude in a Rude Mood. And while the title fits, um, it's really focusing on the, the surface issues that this man had. And so as we go through our time together this morning, I, I pray that we'll see some of the deeper truths that Mark would reveal to us in this text as we understand the great work that Christ did in this man's life. Sometimes as we approach scriptures like this, we're prone to ask, what is in this for me? This isn't asked in a selfish way, when you're, like when you're trying to strike a deal with someone, but it's asked with a sincere heart. What can I learn from this text? Of what value is this writing for me? This story that we've heard rehearsed time and time again, what does God want to teach me through this thing? And I believe that if we approach the scripture with a humble heart, with a heart that is softened as we saw in the parable of the soils, that's ready to receive the word, then God is going to speak to us. I pray that as he does, that we would be obedient to his word, that we would be receptive to these principles that we're going to see, so that we would desire, like this man, to follow after Jesus more passionately than we ever have before. My prayer is that as we look to this miracle, that we would glean from this what God would have us to glean so that we could serve him in a greater way than ever before. The big idea this morning is this, to dwell on the power of Christ and the story of our redemption is of great benefit to us. It reminds us of who we are, who we were in our pre-Christ state, and it draws us to have a greater affection for him as our savior. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand this morning, but who's ever maybe grown weary in your mind And maybe you've never even thought about it like this before, but about this idea of Jesus being your Savior. You say, well, I would never grow weary of such a great truth, a a truth that's changed my life. But I would ask you, if we're not living with that on the forefront of our minds every day, then in some way we have grown weary of this. If we think that we are good enough or we think that we are self-made men and women, then in some way we have grown weary of this idea of who Jesus is and what he has done. And so I pray that in this text, as we look at this maniac, the maniac of Gadara and all the ailments that he had in his life, that we would in reality see a picture of us before Christ and that we would be compelled to follow after Christ in every way possible to make his name known in this world. And friend, when you dwell on what Christ has done for you, you can't help but fall more in love with him as your savior. You can't help it. When you spend your time meditating on this truth, 
that Jesus died in your place and in mine. You can't help but fall more in love with him and want to serve him in a greater way than you ever have before. And so I pray that these things would be true in us as we look to the text today. So I ask you this morning, will you allow God to speak to your heart? Will you allow God to work in your heart in a way that he knows you and I need it? And again, we're reminded of the words of Jesus, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. And so what's going on? I want to walk through the text briefly, and then uh, we'll just look at two points, uh, not so briefly, and then we'll let you get on your way sometime today. What's going on? As the chapter opens, we see that morning has broken and they arrive at shore, and verse 2 reveals that Jesus comes out of the ship and immediately... He was met with a man who was possessed with, with many, many demons. As, as the text describes it, it would be assumed that there were 6,000 demons actually living within this man, which is crazy to think about. Think of, of parasites or, or for, for people that get um, queasy easily, plug your ears. Think of maggots in the bottom of a trash can. Have you ever opened a trash can that, that you've let the trash maybe sit there a little too long? And you open that trash can up and, and flooding the bottom of that trash can is maggots. That's a picture of what was going on inside of this man. Filled with things that were not supposed to be there. Filled with things that were a sign of decay and deterioration. Filled with, with things that were, were making a visible sign of what was happening on the inside be revealed on the outside. And so this man was filled with an unclean spirit. He was living in the tombs. Uh, this man was so uh, overcome with demonic forces, verse 3 says, that no man could bind him, not with chains. As they put the chains and the fetters around his, his ankles to restrict his movement, the Bible says that he would tear up the chains and, and break the, the, uh, the, the, the chains to pieces. No man could bind him, no matter how hard they tried. Again, this is not a picture of his physical strength as a human being, but it's the picture of the demonic forces that were dwelling within him. That they gave him, in some regards, a supernatural power to do things that even the strongest of men in that day couldn't have done. Mark says that no man could tame him. And in verse 5, we see that all night and all day, this man would find himself in the mountains and in the tombs, cutting himself with stones and crying to the top of his lungs. I don't know about you, but this story saddens me. To think of an individual in, in, in such a state, with, with zero hope, with everybody turning their backs on him, not caring about him, only wanting to keep him from, from the general uh, public. And so they tried to chain him up and keep him away. And yet the de demonic forces were so great that he continued to be a threat to himself. He continued to be a threat to those around him. In verse 6, we see that Jesus and this man kind of catch eyes, and the man comes running to Jesus, and the Bible says that he falls and, and worships him. And we know that this was not the man from a physical standpoint who was worshiping him, but it was the demons who were speaking. They recognized who Jesus was, and this is what they say, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? Torment me not. And so as the demons were speaking through this man, I know this is weird, but it's true. As the demons were speaking through this man, they recognized the power that Jesus had within himself, and they were fearful of him. When the Bible says that they fell and worshipped him, they weren't worshipping in a reverential way. 
They fell and worshipped in a false way from a heart that had not been changed by the power of the gospel. James tells us that the demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God and they tremble. And that's what was taking place in this moment. The demons were fearful for what Jesus was going to do. In verse 8, Jesus doesn't accept their worship, but he calls them out of this man. And he's able to call them out of this man. Why? Because he was God in the flesh. Jesus asks them his name, and they answer and say, uh, the, the name of the demon, or the demon answers and says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, a legion of soldiers back in that day would have been comprised of up to 6,000 men. So when the demon says that his name is Legion, that's why we assume that there were upwards of 6,000 demons living within him during this time. The oppression that this man was under was great, and it was destroying his body. In verse 10, as the demons recognize the power of Christ, they ask him not to send him out of the country. And this reminds us that, that as God has forces on his side as we think of his angelic host we understand that satan also has forces on his side being the demons and we know that god ultimately reigns over all of these things but but satan has set up his demons in a way that he sends them out in armies to specific places and so when the demons say don't send us out of this place why didn't they want to leave well it's because that's where they were stationed so to speak that's where their master had called them to be, to do his work of darkness in this world, to keep people from seeing the truth. So in verses 11 and 12, as the demons are making their case for not leaving the country, the Bible reveals that there were in that area a large group of pigs, about 2,000 pigs, and the demons asked to be sent into the pigs, and Christ obliges them. Now why does Christ do this? We don't really know. We don't know what Jesus did or why Jesus did this, uh, but we know that he did. And as Jesus sent the demons into the pigs, the Bible reveals that as they entered the pigs, they violently ran down the hill and they fell into the sea and they were drowned. At the very least, the picture of these pigs running wildly to the sea is a picture of what was going on inside of this man. When the pigs were given, or the, the demons were given free reign in those pigs, in essence, they did to the pigs what they desired to do to the man, to destroy him, to end his life. And so it reveals to us that while the demonic forces had a, a power in this day and in this man, who was ultimately restraining them from doing what they wanted to do? The God of heaven. Their desire was to destroy this man, but God was, with, was holding them back until the time that Jesus came to the shoreline to meet with this man. And friend, what a picture that is of our lives before Christ. We were in a downward spiral, spiral, running away from him, doing everything we could to destroy our lives without even knowing it. And who was the one who was holding us back from going across the edge? It was our loving Heavenly Father. Because he had a divine appointment for us with his son when we came into, uh, into a relationship with Christ. And so if you think about these pigs, each of them would have had about three demons living inside of them. And this is what they were able to do to the pigs. Imagine what it was like with 6,000 of these demons inside of this one individual. Well, when those who were keeping watch over the pigs saw what took place, they knew they probably weren't, weren't their pigs. They knew that, that they were probably going to be in trouble, right? 
You lose 2,000 pigs in one day, uh, your boss probably isn't going to be too happy. And so they make their way back to town, and, and they want other people to come and see this so that their story uh, can be validated. We, we don't want the blood of these pigs on our hands. Put the blood of these pigs on Jesus. So they go, and, and they begin to tell everybody about what happened in this place. And in verse 15, the group comes back, and they find this man that was possessed sitting with Jesus and clothed and in his right mind. And again, what a beautiful picture of the gospel that is. This man that was once categorized by everybody in society as being a castaway, somebody they didn't want anything to do with. Now, he, that was in his past. He was no longer what he once was. And is there anybody in the room today that would say that you are thankful that is true about you? That you're no longer what you once were. And even if you weren't that bad of a person from a moral standpoint, you were still enemies of God and Christ because of your sin. And yet because of the power of the gospel, we can now be seated with Jesus and we're no longer classified as who we once were. So the things that are in your past, they no longer define you. This man was no longer a demon-possessed individual, but he was freed. And friend, whom Jesus sets free is free indeed. So they come and they find Jesus sitting with this man and the disciples, and they don't know what to make of it. They're, they're fearful because of what is taking place. They're fearful because Jesus is sitting with this man, but they're also somewhat fearful because of what Jesus had just done. They're a mixed bag of emotions, so to speak. They don't know what to think and they don't know what to do. And so what do they do? They look to Jesus and say, can you just get out of here, please? We don't know who you are, and we don't know how you have the power to do this, but we don't want you in our country. And so what does Jesus do? The phrase I like is, is a phrase that Pastor Lake always used to say, and it's simply this, that Jesus is a gentleman, and he never stayed where he wasn't wanted. And so when these people begged Jesus to go, Jesus left. And as relieved as they probably were, in the moment, the truth is the decision they made to ask Jesus to leave was devastating for the rest of their lives. So Jesus gets ready to enter into the boat. He gets ready to leave, and this man that was once possessed with all these demons come, and he begs Jesus that he could go with him wherever he goes. And Jesus forbids him. You say, well, that's not very kind of Jesus, right? He's living in a society where people don't like him. They've rejected him for as long as he had been possessed with these devils. They had wanted nothing to do with him. They tried to bind him with chains. I mean, honestly, would you want to live around people that used to try to bind you up with chains? Probably not. Probably a little bit of an uncomfortable situation. They didn't know if you could, they could trust you, and you didn't know if you could trust them from that point on. And Jesus forbids it. And this is one of the first times in the Gospels that Jesus doesn't say, don't tell anybody what I've done. But instead, this is one of the first times that Jesus tells this man, go and tell everyone, everyone, what I have done. And this man's probably thinking, everyone? Every, the, the people that, that rejected me, you want me to tell them about you? So they can experience what I've experienced. And Jesus says, everyone. 
And the man says, even, even the people that, that mocked me and, and chained me up and put me in fetters, even the people that wanted nothing to do with me, they wouldn't try to help me. Everyone, Jesus? And Jesus says, everyone. The Bible says that the man begins to go and publish to everyone. And all of Decapolis, which would have been the ten cities that made up that region in that day, about the work that Jesus had done in his life. What an encounter. What an account that God gives to us in his word. And we must be reminded that this is a real account with real implications for our world today. The word of God is relevant. And it needs to be treated and respected as such. And so this is more than a story. And our two points this morning, I hope that we can understand this. First point today is simply this, a display of Christ's power. A display of Christ's power. The disciples had just witnessed an incredible miracle as Christ calmed the storm with a few spoken words. And now they were met again with another incredible trial. And Christ was able to resolve the situation again with a few spoken words. And as I said, this is the way that life seems to go sometimes. That when God gets you through one obstacle and one hurdle, there always seems to be one more waiting for you. But the disciples were learning as they followed Jesus that if they were ever going to make it through any of the things that they faced, then they needed to stick close to the one who caused them to marvel. They needed to stick close to the one who caused them to be in awe or to be fearful in a reverential way as we saw last week. If they were ever going to survive this life, then they needed to stick close to Jesus. And friends, the same is true for us. If we are going to survive and thrive in this place that God has us, then we have to stick close to Jesus. And so as I said earlier on, sometimes we, we go through life and we begin thinking we can do this without the one who saved us. We're good enough at life that we can at least fake it till we make it, right? But that's not God's desire for us. His desire is not for us to simply go through the motions or fake it. His desire for us is that we would follow Jesus wholeheartedly, that we would walk in his footsteps, that we would let him give us the strength that we need to make it through the trials that we face in life. And though it doesn't always mean he's going to cure the issue, it does mean this, that he's promised to never leave us nor forsake us and walk with us through every single thing that we face. What are you facing in your life right now? We could spend the rest of our time today talking about what you and I are facing as far as challenges go. Can I ask you, are you facing that thing with Jesus? Dan, Dan this sounds too simple, right? You, you, you've broken it down too simple. We need more than this. No, friend, this is what we need to make it through life, clinging to Jesus, trusting in him, and following in his footsteps. So as Jesus calmed the storm and as he cast the demons out of this man, the disciples' minds were beginning to grow in their understanding of who this Jesus was. They were beginning to understand that he was more than a teacher. He was more than a carpenter's son. He was more than a prophet. There was something supernatural about him. And though they hadn't pieced all the pieces together yet, one day they would. And when they did, they would give their lives to serve this Jesus who helped them in these moments. So I would ask you today, friend, have you understood the power of Christ in such a magnificent way that you're willing to put your life on the line in service to him? You say, well, well, you don't know my life. I don't know everything about your life. 
but Jesus does. I don't know every storm that you're facing. I only know the ones that you share with me. And from the ones that have shared their storms with me, there's a number of storms going on in this room. And so I would ask you, are you facing that thing with Jesus? Are you, are you facing it with the one who holds all things together and if he let them go, then everything would fall apart? Or are you holding, holding close to the one who is holding you together? You see, in these stories from Mark chapter 4 through Mark chapter 5, Christ is really displaying his omnipotence or his great power. And that great power encompasses everything. He is in total control. And in these two stories alone, we see that Christ was able to calm the storm with his words. He was able to cast out the demons with his word. And if Christ could do those things then, friend, how many great things can he do in our lives if we'll simply trust him? In the coming accounts, Jesus would again display to those around him his incredible power. And as he does, we'll see that more and more people begin to follow him passionately. But at the very same time, more and more people begin to despise him viciously. So we have to ask, why, why was Jesus displaying his power if it was going to cause such a, a friction in the world that he lived in? Well, first off, friend, we understand that Christ displayed his power because he wanted us to understand that he was God in the flesh. You see, much of religion today wants us to believe that Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit are all separate individuals, and Jesus may not even be a part of the Godhead. He was just a good man. But friend, one of the things that makes Christianity what it, was, what it is is that we believe that God came to us to tell us how we could get back to him. He came and died in our place. He robed himself in flesh. And this is one of the core doctrines of our faith. And if you're in a place where you're beginning to reject the reality of who Jesus is, that he's, you think he's just a man, then friend, can I tell you, you're on a slippery slope. Because Jesus was much more than a man. He was God in the flesh, and he is the Savior of the world. And so he, he shows his, 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 this display of power to prove that he was God. He wanted people to see this, even though they wouldn't understand it until he was gone. But the second reason he displays his power is so that we could see that he is able to do anything that he wants to do. Anything. Could you go to a man that had 6,000 demons within him and with a few spoken words have those demons removed and have him sitting beside you in his right mind? Most of us wouldn't even dare go near a man that had any sort of amount of demons in him. But Jesus was able to, and he was willing to. And as he did, he was showing the disciples that they could trust him. Remember, how did the disciples get in the storm? Because they were obedient to Jesus. If they had stayed on the shore, they never would have been caught in that storm in the first place. And isn't that what we're so prone to thinking sometimes? If I had just done it my way, things would have turned out differently. As they make it through the storm and, and they find themselves in front of this demon, they're probably thinking, man, if we had only stayed on the shore, we would have missed the storm and the demon. And our lives would have been much simpler. And maybe that's true. But can I say the opposite is also true, that if they had just stayed on the shore, they would have missed the storm and the demons. And they would have missed seeing Christ display his power over these things that caused them such fear and torment in their lives. 
And so this is more than a story. This is more than an account to just simply make us feel good or to think through history. But we must understand that Christ did these things for a reason. And his reason was to display that he has ultimate power over everything in this world. And why is that? Because he is God. And as God, he can do whatever he pleases. Several times in the Gospels, we see people come and throw themselves at the feet of Jesus because they believed that he could help them in their time of need. They had great faith in those moments where distress and and discouragement were taking over their lives. And yet so often in our lives, instead of running to the one who has ultimate power, we try to fix and correct our issues, and we look at Jesus more like he's a consulting firm than he is a miracle worker. We don't go to Jesus as a consultant. We go to Jesus as the one who is able to do all that we could ever dream of him doing. And so as we think about the things we face in this life, we must understand that none of our trials are too big for Jesus, and he can calm them in the midst of them, and he can take us from outside of them, and he can do a great work that we could never even imagine being done in our lives. And so as we see the display of Christ's power, I would ask us again, are are we running to Christ every day of our lives? Not just when we have trials, but every day of our lives. In Matthew 6, 24 through 34, we see Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And verse 24 starts with this, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not life more than meat and the body more than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit to his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, uh, they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall not he much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. That's a familiar passage to us. And typically when I've read that passage before, I've started in verse 25. Jesus says, therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life. But the point Jesus is making really begins in verse number 24, where he says, no man can serve two masters. You see, and when we go through life facing the struggles and the trials that we face and we think in our minds, okay, I've got to buckle down and I've got to figure this out and I've got to, I've got to make this work. What is Jesus basically saying? That you are serving the wrong master. Instead of you thinking you need to figure out and you need to handle it and you need to get it done with, you need to run to the one who is in control of all things. You need to seek his kingdom first and then what's going to happen? He's promised to give you every single thing you need in this life. 
But the problem is, so often, we just don't believe that those words of Jesus are true. Friend, if Jesus can calm the storm with the disciples in the Sea of Galilee, and if Jesus can cast out 6,000 demons with the spoken word, do you think that Jesus is able to handle whatever problem you're facing in your life? Do you think that Jesus is able to handle you in whatever problem you're facing in your life? And so as we see this display of power, as we see this great work of Christ, we must understand that it's drawing us into this place where we should desire to walk intimately with Jesus as our Savior. This man went from being a demon-possessed man who everyone hated, everyone shunned, to now sitting with Jesus and desiring to walk with Jesus for the rest of his days. Why did this man want to walk with Jesus? Because he understood the power that Jesus had. He wanted to be closely associated with the one who had changed his life. And friend, I would ask this today. Is that our desire? Oh, we, we like Jesus when everything is going well, right? Sometimes even in those moments, we begin to forget about him. And then when things fall apart, we cry out to him again. And, and thankfully, because he's gracious and his mercy is unending, he's always there and he's willing to come into our lives But is that the way that God intends for us to live? No. He desires that we walk closely with him every day. That we lean on him every day. That we trust in him every day. He desires that we have an intimate relationship with him where the displays of God's power are not these mesmerizing things where we stop and say, oh my goodness, look what God just did. But when we see him do those things, we just step back and say, that's my God. That's the one that I walk through life with. That's the one who holds me in the palm of his hand, who's promised to never leave me, nor forsake me. That's my God. And while it should cause us to be in awe, it shouldn't necessarily be that we're surprised that he did it, but it's that we're thankful that he did it. So I pray today as we understand this first point, the display of Christ's power, that you would look at this and apply it to to your situation. As I said, and I'm probably going to say it again, applying this this scripture to our situation doesn't mean that the trial is going to be over. But it does mean that he'll walk with you through it. And I think this, this, this story is actually a good example of that. Because this man's life would have been much easier if Jesus said, yep, come with me, than it was for him to go back to those people that hated him so profusely. So it doesn't mean he's going to take the trial away, and it doesn't mean that he's going to take you out of the trial, but it does mean that he'll walk with you through that as we look to his ultimate power to be manifest in our lives. So a display of Christ's power. The second thing is a picture of our redemption. As we understand the first point, I think we can all come to an agreement that that we should be in awe of Christ's power and that we should walk with him daily. But, but oftentimes when we look at these, these examples in Scripture, these accounts that God has given us, what we fail to do is to see ourselves in the story. Now, I'm not one of those people that says we're in every Bible story and, and I'm especially not one of those people who, who says we're the hero of every Bible story, right? In the story of David and Goliath, we're not David, right? Who are we? 
We're the ones sitting on the side of the hill, scared to death to do anything. Who's David? Well, that would be Jesus, who comes in and conquers the enemy in a way that we never could. So we can't think of ourselves as the hero. And I don't want us to be self-deprecating, but we should also be realistic, right? Are you the hero of your own story? No, I'm not the hero of my own story. So let's not take credit for it. Let's see reality for what it is that we're the ones who are in need of a savior and let's move on with that mindset as we make our way through scripture. And so in this scenario, who then are we? Or should I say, who then were we? Well, we're not the disciples and we're certainly not Jesus. But if this stands to serve as a picture of our redemption, then we are the man who was possessed with 6,000 demons. The man who was running in every way opposite of what society and of what Christ would have wanted him to do. We're the men and women who were on a journey and a path of self-harm, even if it wasn't physical self-harm. Understand this, apart from Christ, we're on a journey of spiritual harm where we, by our choices, by our activity, because of our sin, have separated ourselves from God and the chasm is great and there's nothing that we can do to bridge the divide until Jesus steps into our world. And do you understand today that without Jesus, friend, we would have no hope. You may sit here today and think that you've made a pretty good life for yourself. I was having this conversation with, with Noah, and it, wasn't, it was a good conversation, actually. Uh, he has a, a, a summer mowing job that he's been making a little money on, and uh, I was teaching him about giving back to the Lord. And he said, why, why do Christians give to the church? I said, Noah, who gave you the ability to mow that person's grass? God did. And so our giving is a recognition of the grace that God has poured into our life. Every dollar that you and I have is not because we are some self-made individuals, but it's this idea that God has gifted us in a way that we don't deserve, yes, spiritually, but also physically. And our giving is a physical representation of our understanding of what God has done for us. Are you glad that the Bible doesn't talk about giving 90 and keeping 10? Right? That would make life a whole lot harder. So God is even gracious in this idea of giving to give back a small portion of what he's given. Now, we could all go down all sorts of rabbit trails and think, well, what could I do if I didn't give? Friend, where would you be if God didn't give for you? Dead in your sins. So let's not go down that rabbit hole, but let's be thankful. So the story of this demon-possessed man, the maniac of Gadara, is a picture of our redemption. As Christ makes it to the shore, we understand that Christ came to where he was. This man didn't come to where Christ was. As Christ is confronted with this situation, Christ didn't back away from it thinking, this is too much for me to handle. But he knew that through his power as being a part of the Godhead, that he could overcome every demon that was inside this man, not with a magic trick, but with a spoken word. And as this man was healed from his demon possession, and he then found himself sitting and clothed in his right mind, with, I imagine, the disciples mending the wounds that were on his body from the lifestyle that he used to live. This man was changed for eternity, not because of what this man had done, but because of what Jesus had done. And friend, understand this today. 
that our hope in this life and in the life to come is not because of what we have done. It's only because of Jesus. The song that we sing, in my opinion, we don't sing it enough, Dave, is uh, what is our hope in Christ alone? Uh, What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. Why, Why is that song a favorite of mine? Because it reminds me that without Christ, I am nothing. And what I am in Christ is only because he is gracious, not because I am good. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul gives an illustration that fits with the narrative that's before us today as we think about the position that this demon-possessed man found himself in. In verses 1 through 5, he says this, And you, speaking to those who are in the church at Ephesus, but also speaking to every believer who has lived since that day, and you hath he quickened. That word quickened, it means to be made to life or brought to life. And why did we need to be brought to life? Because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Where in times past, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Who was it that was working in the the maniac of Gadara? It was the prince of this world. The one who works in the children of disobedience. And Paul says in verse number 3, among whom also we all had our conversation or our lifestyle in past times, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. Friend, the only reason that you and I are not in the position that this man was in is because Christ stepped into our lives. The only reason that this man could take the next step forward being changed internally and externally is because of what Christ has done for him. You see, the gospel levels the playing field. For those whom society says there's no hope for, what does it offer them? Hope! And for those who think they're beyond the hope of Christ... What does it lower them down to? This place where they understand they need Christ. And so when we hear the gospel preached, the true gospel that does talk about sin, and talks about the only cure for that sin is forgiveness that's found in the blood of Jesus Christ, it brings us all to the same place. That's why Paul talks so much about about the the Jews and the Greeks and the barbarians, the wise and the unwise, the, the men and the women, the slaves and the slave owners. And he puts all those people together. Why? Because in Christ they are one. And who is it that that does this great binding work in our lives? It's our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. So don't look down your nose at another individual when they sin in a different way than you sin. Don't think poorly of somebody because they haven't reached the level that you've reached. But think of where you were and where Christ has brought you by His grace. So to this man who who was on a pathway of destruction and despair, 
we see that he's now given him life. And it's a reminder to us of what John tells us, or Jesus tells us in John's gospel, that the thief has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. But Jesus came to give life. And how does he give that life? More abundantly. More abundantly than this man could have ever asked or thought. More abundantly than we could ever ask or think. While the enemy often lures us, I told Brianna the other day, I'd be a horrible fish. I get lured away by so many things in my life. I'd have, if, if it was a catch and release pond, I would have had like a hundred holes in my upper lip, right? So the enemy constantly seeks to lure us away, to think there's a, a better way, to think there's a better plan, to think that you should put your hope in something else. And all the while, Jesus is saying, I've already given you life. And the life I've given you is more than anything this world could ever offer you. And that's what this man experienced. As Christ sent the evil demons into the herd of pigs, understand that he did much more for us as he took our sins upon himself. We think of those pigs being cast into the sea. Well, because of what Christ has done for us, he's taken our sins. And where has he cast them? Into the sea of his forgetfulness. Never to be remembered. And why is this? Oh, it's because you and I are such good people. No, it's because we have such a good Savior. So friend, understand this is more than a story. As we see Christ's power displayed, we see that He does so to reveal that He is indeed God and He wants us to trust Him as such. And as we see this as a picture of our redemption, may we never get to the point where we stop seeing reality for what it was and what it is. That we once were on a path to destruction. But Jesus stepped into our lives and changed everything. This display of Christ's power has to lead us to a picture of our redemption. For everything that Christ did on this earth pointed to the reason that he came, which was to die for the sins of the world. You see, we may not have the same brokenness that sin had caused in this man. But we all have brokenness. We may not have the same visible appearance of the scars of our past as this man probably carried with him for the rest of his life, but we all have scars from our past. And what should we do with those scars? Use them as a reminder of what God has redeemed us from. I love how, how the Bible describes that the man that was possessed was now seated with Jesus. He wasn't the possessed man anymore. And friend, if you or I are in Christ, then we are no longer enemies of God. But we've been reconciled through the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been reconciled not because of who we are, but because of what Christ has done for us. And as this is a story of our redemption, we understand that this man, when he was healed, what was his desire? To be with Jesus. To be with the one who rescued him. And friend, can I tell you today that if you call yourself a Christian and you have no desire to spend time with Jesus, then that's proof that something is wrong inside your heart. You say, well, I'm on church at church on a holiday weekend, right? I'm doing well, and I'm glad you're here. But can we also be honest and say that there are many times that we go to church that our heart isn't where it should be? 
So do you desire to spend time with Jesus? I remember when Brianna and I were, were dating, actually before we were dating, I would find any excuse to be around her in any way that I could. If I thought she was going to, it probably sounds like I was a stalker, and maybe I was, but if I thought she was going to be somewhere, guess where I was going to be? I was going to be where I thought she was going to be. Why? Because in some ways I was infatuated with her. I was mesmerized by her. We were a couple of foolish teenagers, right? She was the one I wanted to be around. So I would ask us today, if, if Christ has really done what the Bible describes that he's done for us, shouldn't we desire to be with him? And being with him, as Jesus describes, isn't in closeness of proximity in a physical realm, because Jesus sends him away. But what does Jesus say to all those who follow him in the end of the Gospels? I will be with you. As you follow me, as you walk in my ways, as you live out my commands, I will be with you. I will go with you and I will empower you with that incredible power that I displayed all through the Gospels. And everything I do will be a picture of the redemption that I have provided for you through my death and, and, and burial and resurrection. I will be with you. And so this is more than a story. And I pray today that we would see ourselves in this story. That we would see ourselves as Maybe those who are still lost in their sins, needing a Savior. Can I tell you, friend, that Jesus will save you if you come to Him? If by faith you repent of your sins and look to Him as your one and only Savior, He will save you from your sins, not just in this life, but for all of eternity. You may say, well, I'm a pretty good person. Friend, our, our youngest, Charlotte, five years old, week and a half ago, trusted Christ as her Savior. Do you know she needed Jesus just as much as this man needed Jesus? If you're here today and, and you're not a Christian, understand this, friend. You need Jesus as much as this man needed Jesus. So will you turn to him today? Will you place your hope in him and him alone. From naked and violent and hostile and loud and possessed to now serving Jesus and telling everyone about the one who changed his life. What a story of redemption and grace. And the Bible says that as this man went his way, that everyone marveled that's the, at the words that he said. <clears throat> I don't mean this harshly, and I mean it probably more for myself than anybody else. Do you know, friend, why so many people in the world don't marvel at us as Christians? Could it be that we don't actually live a life that proves that Jesus has changed us? We, we like to blame it on the world, don't we? Well, they've been blinded by the God of this world. They can't see the truth. Well, obviously, 
The people in this scenario saw a difference in this man. And we could say, well, he was demon-possessed and all these different things. You know, that they could see a, a physical difference in him. Friend, they should see a difference in us as well. If our redemption is genuine, if Jesus is our Savior, if we have been forgiven from our sins that were holding us captive in bondage, leading us to hell, shouldn't the world see the difference in a life that has been transformed by Jesus? Yet so often, we want to get so close to the line of this is us and this is the world. And we think that if we just toe the line long enough, then everybody's going to see a difference. No, if we toe the line long enough, what are people going to see? That we're really no different than they are. But when we back up from the line and the world is there and we are here, not because of our self-righteousness, not because of a holier-than-thou attitude, but we're here because we recognize the change that Jesus has made in us, the world is going to see the difference and they are going to marvel. And you know what that's going to do? It's going to open up a door for us to say, can I tell you who's made the difference in my life? Can I tell you about Jesus? Jesus told this man, go and tell. And really, that's a precursor to the great commission that Jesus gives in the end of the Gospels. Go and tell. So as we think about this display of Christ's power and as we think about this picture of our redemption, I pray that we would allow both of these thoughts to if we're saved, bring us into a closer union with Jesus where we have intimate fellowship with Him, where we desire to walk with Him, not for what we can get out of Him, but because of what He has already done for us. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, I pray that today you would understand that He is a magnificent Savior. And His ultimate display of power was when He died on the cross for your sins and for mine, and triumphantly rose from the grave the third day. And now he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and one day he's coming again. And one day there will be a great reckoning where those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ will go to an eternity with him. And those who reject the reality of Christ will be separated from him forever. I would ask you today, what will you do with this message of Jesus? What will you do with the truth of the Savior? God, we love you and we thank you again for this morning that we can gather and we pray that you would use your word to do a great work in us, God, that you know we need. God, for those in the room that are lost, there's no coaxing or convincing that I can do to make a spiritual change in them. God, we know your spirit is able. We pray that as your spirit works, that he would draw them to you and that they would confess their sins and they would turn to Christ alone by faith to be their Savior. God, for those of us who are saved today, I pray that we would be in awe of the display of Christ's power in the scriptures, but also in our lives. And I pray that we would see ourselves in this picture of redemption. That we were nothing without you. But in Christ, we've been made whole. 
that we were on a path leading to destruction, but we have been forgiven. And if that's true, God, I pray that we would take this message to the world so that all around us could hear the truth that Jesus is the Savior, not just at Christmas and not just at Easter, but every day of our lives that people would look to us and they would marvel not at who we are, but they would marvel at who our Savior is. God, make us more like your son, Jesus. We know, God, that it's for our good and it's for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As we stand and close with a song this morning, if you have questions about Christ, I would ask you to meet me in the back. And if you're here today and you are a believer, I pray that we would just spend some time thinking through the reality of our redemption, that we'd be humbled once again at the feet of Jesus, the one who died for us.